to 90% Mental. I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our eighth episode. Well, if you're a basketball fan, things are pretty exciting right now with March Madness and the NBA playoffs, which are right around the corner. My guest today, who is someone who means a lot to me and who has just been an incredible coach within the Bay Area, and if you are from the Bay Area, you probably have heard of his name. His name is Hans Delanoy. Currently, he's the girls' varsity head basketball coach for Dublin High. Hunt has been coaching for over 40 years. 36 of them have been at the varsity level for boys and girls. But he's won a ton of championships throughout his, his coaching career. But more importantly, if you ask any athlete that's played for him, they would all say some incredible things about his coaching, about his approach, and just about how he is as just a human being. You're going to hear some really good conversations between Hans and I talking about how high school athletes have to deal with the fear of failure and disconnecting from the outcome. We also talked a little bit about how teams right now in the March Madness tournament, how do they deal with with disconnecting from the outcome when everything right now at this stake or at this point of the tournament is all about winning. So you're going to hear some really cool things from a championship coach. So let's go talk to Coach Delanoy. Hey, Coach, how are you? I am doing great, Grant. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for being on my show. I've been, um, been really, really meaning to get you on this show and, you know, considering that I've known, known you for a long time and known the success as a basketball coach, I've been very, very, um, just eager and excited to have you on our show and talk to you about a few cool things about probably what you see a lot in high school athletes since it's spent, it's where you spent most of your your experience coaching at the high school level uh, with men, with boys and women, but we're going to talk about the fear of failure and also how you coach disconnecting from the outcome, winning and losing. So I think uh, it's going to be really interesting to hear your thoughts and your perspective. But before I get into our interview and our conversation, you know, I always start off my podcast by asking a simple question of what does mentally tough mean to you as a coach? Well, I think mentally tough means learning to defeat that little opponent that sits inside your head that tells you, hey, I can't, I'm tired, I can't run anymore, I can't make this free throw, I'm worried. Once you learn to defeat the little opponent that sits in the back of your mind, then you become mentally tough. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, I I agree with you. I think it's... You know, I always ask this question, and I've always there's been kind of a similarity of answers, but that one's uh, has been a little bit different. But it's actually, I, I agree with it 100 percent because when we perform, I always say it's always about you versus you. If you can control your you body and your you mind, because sometimes those are two different things. If you can control those and get them in sync, then you're in a position to be mentally tough and then magical things happen once you can mirror those two and make that marriage. So that's, that's, that's awesome. That's great stuff on your part. I really like that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, so you just, you're got, welcome. <laughs> you just got done with the season. You're the varsity women's basketball coach for Dublin, Dublin high school, correct? Correct. So tell me how, how the season go. You know, it's one of the toughest seasons I've ever gone through in my coaching career. Uh, we had multiple injuries to outstanding players. 
And so we had to battle through some stuff. Interesting. So how, how did you deal with that? You know, um, I try to stay as positive and patient as possible. Um, we started the season and my third best player returning starter fractures her growth plate in August. So I know she's not coming back till the middle of December on November 22nd, her sister, who's my best player in a division one scholarship player sprains her ankle. And so now we're moving into that phase. And then I have a, a personal tragedy. My father passes on Thanksgiving morning. He was going to be 93. Mm. So we were dealing with a lot of different multiple issues. So I just try to stay as positive and patient as possible, you know, and uh, just kind of work through it. And every single time we started to turn some corners, we had another injury. The point guard that's the division one scholarship player sprained her ankle three different occasions during the season. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, we had to deal with, with a lot of adversity. Definitely. And we just, uh, try to stay as positive and patient as I could. So when you have, you know, when you deal with a team that goes through injuries, because I definitely know how that is. You know, I was coaching last year varsity football, and uh, we started off with a ton, a ton of injuries to very key players. But the culture that we had, it it, it didn't it didn't I mean it affected us, but it didn't uh, we we didn't give up. Yeah. So how how did that how did those injuries how did it affect the the psyche of the the team? Well, I I think that we went into every game and I think we battled. And when we had to play with seven kids, we battled. We, we, I never thought we, we quit. We battled all season long. And as far as, you know, it's difficult because you go into a season with really high hopes. And so you make a schedule that you think is going to be challenging because you think you're going to be playing in the section playoffs. And when the kids got hurt, we played three straight games against three teams that were seated in the top six in the North Coast section playoffs. Wow. So that was, yeah, you know, it just kind of came in waves. But, um, you know, we we just did the best we could in, in battling through that. You know, uh, it's it's very very interesting because the the experience that I had as a coach last year we went zero and four and then we won ten in a row. But the the four okay. teams that we lost to at the end of the season they were ranked uh, in the top ten in state. So wow, yeah. So it, it kind of made sense towards the end of the season why that happened. But then again, you know, we did we did have a lot of injuries that we were dealing with at the beginning of the year with key players. You know, and I and I asked that uh, initial question just because sometimes when you have these these injuries, something you know, things that are just kind of out of our control, sometimes it affects the psyche of the team. It affects the psyche of the culture, the coaches. 
But what I've kind of found is if you just focus on what you can't control, because some of these, these injuries you can't control them. So what can we control? What can we focus on from a control standpoint? And then how can we get back into, you know, reconnecting with the process? So, yeah. So have you had to deal with that? I know this seemed like a very tough season for you, but did you have to deal with that? I mean, you've had, is it 40 years you've been coaching? Uh, 40 years I've been coaching and I've been a varsity coach for 36 of them. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. In fact, I coached my first varsity team as a 20 year old in 1972, 73. Where at? Well, I graduated from Coverly high school in 70 and in 72, 73, I'd played two years of college basketball at Foothill junior college. I redshirted that year. Mm. So I started at my alma mater and I coached the C basketball team. It was lightweight basketball in the fall. And that winter I was going to be the boys JV basketball coach. The girls varsity team and the girls JV team didn't have a coach at that time. So I says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll practice them till you find a coach. So I practiced with these girls for two weeks well, they found a coach, all right. I ended up coaching the girls' varsity, girls' JVs, and boys' JVs during the same season. Whoa. That's a lot of coaching. At 20, yeah, at 20 years old. And um, so it was, it was a great experience. That's awesome. Now, yeah. do you see the difference since you've coached, you know, throughout your career you've coached, you know, boys and girls, do you see a difference in, well, let me back up. At the end of the day, we're all human. We're all made of emotions. We all deal with stuff. But when it comes to fear of failure, do you see the difference how boys deal with fear versus girls uh, during the sport of basketball? You know, that's an interesting question because I haven't coached boys basketball since 1998. And I think, you, well, my answer would be based on the, on what I'm seeing now. You know, as we've gravitated, what's happened is there's many, many more voices in the players' heads now. So at the boys' level and the girls' level now, I think the fear of failure is much higher because they're getting input from so many different places. And, you know, their parents hear things from trainers or see their kids playing certain AAU venues, but they don't know what level of competition it is. Maybe the kid goes to a camp and the camp is a lower level camp, but they're labeled varsity and JV divisions. So their daughter or son ends up playing with the varsity group in this camp and the parents go away thinking they're varsity prospects. And so the pressure on kids now is incredible. You, you make a really good point because I, I do, I agree with you. I think there's, there's a lot of resources now and there's a lot of different type of um, disciplines that coaches or trainers are now getting into. So you traditionally, you have that head coach and assistant coach, and then you have, you know, a trainer, and that's kind of 
pretty much it. But now you have stretching coaches, you have mental performance coaches, you have parents that are hiring other outsourced resources outside of the coaching staff. And it can get not only convoluted, but for the athlete too, especially if if it's at a young age, if, if, if an athlete's a freshman or sophomore, you know, getting all this, this information fed to them at times, it could be too many cooks in the kitchen for an athlete. Oh, no question. No question. You know, and some people are out there and they're training kids in basketball, but the trainers, not teachers, you know, so they put them through drills and stuff and, and, the drills they put them through are designed to improve rapidly so the kid sees themselves improving at that particular skill and they're happy. So they now have a nice relationship with their trainer. And it's difficult. You know, it's very difficult. I've had players that have gone to two or three trainers and they're just working so hard to try to get that college scholarship and some of them just don't have it physically to play at that level. Mm. But they're, they're being pushed and convinced by their trainers that they have a chance. And so, you know, sometimes it's so easy for these kids to build up false hopes. And what's, what's even tougher is the parents build up false hopes. Mm. So as a coach... How do you? Ha- what kind of conversations do you have with an athlete to s- kind of to set the reality? I mean, do you do that or do you not? As far as them thinking that they're a D one prospect. Well, more than anything now, my philosophy is if if a kid says, "Hey, I want to be a Division one basketball player," then my philosophy, and this has changed a lot, is that okay? What do we need to do to get you to that level? And, you know, they need to train, they need to be in such good shape and they need to work on their skills. And while they work on their skills, they also have to develop an understanding of the game. And one of the very difficult things is, is that AAU has become so big now, but the problem with AAU is the framework is really not designed for teaching fundamental basketball because you practice a couple times a week, you play three times on the weekend, you know, you have to put in your, your team schemes, your plays, your defenses. So they don't really get a lot of individual work on those fundamentals that maybe are germane to a high school team's success. Right. And germane to a individual developing the skills and fundamentals they need to go to the college level. Some people do a great job of this, but Others, you know, it's very difficult because of that framework. Right, right. Well, and even, you know, earlier when we talk about disconnecting from the outcome, I mean, the outcome obviously is, you know, can be winning and losing, but it also is getting that scholarship. And, and it could be various other factors that the outcome could be meaningful for an athlete. So I can only imagine as a coach, you know, you want to practice on, you want to focus on the process. You want to focus on the right skills, doing things right with the best effort. But when you have an athlete or a group of athletes that are focusing on different outcomes, then what you're teaching could be, can be difficult, but it could be detrimental to the team. Yes. No question. No question. 
Now let's talk about actually, you know, I know that you've had some incredible, um, incredible teams, championship teams. I remember um, when I was in high school when you were coaching San Juan Valley High, and um, I think you had Randy Wynn and a couple other guys on your team. How did that team, because I remember they were just, they were incredible and they were beating everybody all the time. What was, what was, what was the, the main factor of their success, do you think, as a team? Well, I didn't coach that team. Oh, okay. I coached the uh, San Ramon teams of 86 and 87, and they were back-to-back EBL champions. But, you know, um, go ahead and ask your question in regards to the team with, with Randy Wynn. Because, you know, I taught at San Ramon while these guys were playing there. Mm. Very well. And, you know, we competed against them. It, it was a, 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 just an outstanding group, very well coached, tremendous dedication, kids with great character. And where do you, you think know? that comes from? Because, you know, when you look at, when you look at cultures and, in, 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 you know, at least when I grew up within the EBL, you know, there was always teams like Ceremon High and Monta Vista. Yeah. That were just, there. it didn't matter. They were always good. What makes, what do you yeah. think mentally, like, how does that get instilled into the culture? Well, you know, I think the, the child, you know, it, coming up and having this great character and tremendous work ethic, I think it starts in the home, mm. you know, and it's, it's, if your parents always value the fact that you're participating and that you're developing lifetime skills, then I think that, that the kid starts to develop that level of character and understanding what it's really all about. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and those kids, you know, they came into these programs with tremendous character and, that character was enhanced and, and, you know, strengthened through being part of a program that was demanding and well-coached. And, you know, uh, many, many years ago, we used to go to a camp in San Luis Obispo, the Cuesta College camp. And I remember the head coach at Cuesta College saying, you know, the years that your best players have the best attitudes you have great seasons and it's true. If your team leader has a great attitude, you have great seasons. Right. You know, you have great team culture. <laughs> and that, that's the truth right there. I mean, it's, that's the truth. And I think when a team sees that they have, you know, a leader or leaders, most of those leaders, when it comes to fear, they embrace the fear. They embrace that moment. You know, they want it to be, you know, last second shot or a really close game and the, and the game is in their hands because the team builds confidence within those leadership. So when those, when those leaders have a great attitude, good communication, they're holding everyone accountable. It just, it just strengthens the culture and, and it makes everybody around them just feel more connected. Yeah, no question. You know, it's an interesting thing when you talk about wanting to take the big shots and fear of failure and all those things. If you look at Michael Jordan and you look at how he played the game of basketball, in my mind, what he did 
is that he reduced it to two five-year-olds playing checkers against each other, and you're just playing for the love of the game, and there's no fear of losing. Right. right. You know? And it's, it's, it's not a life-or-death thing. <laughs> Embrace the moment and, and learn to love the game. Love of the game can't be taught, but it is contagious. Right, right. Pretty much one of my mentors, I don't know if you're familiar with, he's a mental performance uh, coach as well, but he specializes in basketball and works a lot with a lot of professional basketball players, one being Aaron Gordon from the Orlando Magic. But his name is Graham Betchart, and he talks about about this all the time, about fear. He's like, you know, fear's a choice. Like, you know, the whole, no one makes you fear feel fearful. You're the one that creates that whole story. And he goes, so once you realize it's a choice and he has this acronym of fear, false evidence appearing real. So you're creating that, that you versus you athlete, that other side of you is creating this false evidence. That's not even really there. You're just making this up because the guy is ranked and they've never lost and they're big and they're fast. And you're creating all this story but it's not really real. You're, it's only real to you. So really interesting about fear and how it can just, you can embrace it and you can use it or you can let it debilitate you. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. You know, and I just think that uh, in this day and era, there's, there's so much more pressure on kids. Um, you know, parents that are thinking their kids are going to get scholarships and stuff. And so the kids, you know, kids can worry about how many points they score. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Morgan Wooten came up with 14 guidelines for parents and they're just incredible because they talk about, Hey, tell your child you love them and don't soften the blow and things of that nature. And, you know, he, he says, you know, he talks about how kids actually fear going home with their parents after the game. If they haven't had a good game or they've not taken enough shots. And there's a lot of different influences out there. Right. And, you know, trying to, to get, everybody to understand and be on board in terms of the evaluation of their children is a very difficult thing because boy, there's a lot of people that just are not really honest with kids. Um, you know, it, it, it's like the kid's dream is to be a scholarship basketball player and the coaches have to know that. And yet they don't tell the kid, well, if you want to be a scholarship player, you've got to get in great shape. Mm. You know, you have to be able to run forever and you've got to be just so, you know, you've got to trim your body to the point where you have nothing holding you back. And, but, but coaches don't necessarily tell players that. And especially at, the AAU level, if you're not a real good player 
but you're on an AAU roster, you know, you may not get touches or reps that you need to have to be successful with your high school team. And you may not be allowed to make mistakes in practice because the coach wants to win. And that's, it's interesting because, you know, that's from a coaching, uh, from a coaching standpoint, when your mentality is all about winning, then, then the whole improving and learning piece is really not there for everyone on the team. Yeah. You know, and for, for me, you know, even when I coached last year and, and I've heard this, you know, I think in the last 10 years, you know, especially, well, I think in all sports, um, in team sports, but the, you know, being second string is a really, really vital position on the team because when you're a starter, you know, you're going to start, but when you're sitting there sitting, you have to be mentally and physically ready to step in and do your job. And, and considering with all the, the, the injuries that my team dealt with last year, I saw how important the coaching staff took it. I mean, they were like literally after the first game, they're like, we need to get two or three or four more people ready just in case because we, our schedule yeah. was, was really hard. So we knew there could be and, – and we, we kind of read the defense a little bit. I mean, it, we, we're still, we, we were still getting hurt, but our, our thought process was let's get these people playing time because it wasn't – we all want to win – but it was it was bigger than that, and I I think the you know I applaud my head coach from kind of seeing the bigger picture in that regard. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, because you do have to get players ready. One of the things that that uh, we encountered this year is it was just very difficult to practice because with so many players injured, there were so many times we couldn't go five on five, and you know, so you have to try to do things, you know at half court level and you just, uh, you know, and when you have a lot of players that miss practice, you have a lot of slippage. So you have to repeat stuff all the time. Oh. And, and that's an interesting coaching situation, a very interesting coaching situation. Yeah. I'm curious too, you know, through the, through the 40 years of coaching, has your philosophy changed or has it always been the same? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think my philosophy's changed a little bit. Uh, you know, when I was uh, in coaching as a, as a younger coach, you know, I always told players to shoot for the stars and if you don't reach it, or shoot for the moon. If you don't reach it, you come down and you grab a star. <laughs> but now what the problem is, is that those, you know, it, it was a player's dream. Now it's a family's dream. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like, and if that dream isn't realistic, it's, that's a very difficult thing to deal with for the kid and just for the coach. Because all of a sudden they're thinking my kid is a really good player because they went to camp and they were in the varsity division and they make the JV team and they're upset. And one of the things that you have now is that you have this huge network where people are always talking to each other. And, you know, they have this idea that, well, if you're not on a varsity roster as a sophomore, you're not going to get a scholarship. And those things are so untrue. Yet at the same time, 
those are the kind of messages that are getting across. Right. Have you, so, you know, go ahead. Have you ever been in a situation where, you know, cause I have, you know, th- there's definitely stories out there where there's been, you know, very involved parents or parent, but have you been in a situation as a head coach where the pressure from either a group of parents or a parent becomes more the stress than trying to win and you know win win the game win the game or have a winning season. Oh no question, no mm-hmm. question. And how do you deal with that? Uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. You know, um, yeah, it's one of the toughest things ever. I think that uh, when you have to deal with situations like that, one of the things that you really need is. Is you need help from all the parties that are part of that, you know, part of the framework of the whole educational system. I mean, you need support from administrators. You need support from your athletic director. And, um, you know, one of the things that is that we don't do as coaches enough is that we don't have round tables with coaches where coaches sit around and they just talk about maybe concerns or uh, things that they've encountered or, or how they found a solution to the problem. We, we just don't share those kind of things enough. That's a great idea. And yeah. Because, you know, there's people out there, there's some, everybody has strengths and weaknesses and some people are just phenomenal with kids and, and they just, they just understand and they read them so well. And, you know, those, those people have some valuable information that that all of us could benefit from. And we, you know, we just don't get enough opportunities to share ideas. Right. I think it's an it's, it's a incredible idea because, you know, everybody has best practices. When I mean everybody, coaches have best practices. You know, they have – there's really cool sayings that they say that resonate with other coaches and other players. But they also have a way of, of dealing with parents in the administration. And, and I've only coached for a few years, and so I've only been introduced to one culture, you know, at Sarah High School. But Patrick Walsh, the head football coach, I mean, is incredible on doing that. He, his best practices in, in working with the parents in the administration – you know, it's, it's in, he does it really, I mean, he's been doing it for 17 years with the high school, but it's, he just does it really well. Even when times are tough, when we're losing, you know, we're 0 and 4, you know, there was everybody jumping on social media, bad mouthing the coaching staff. And, and the way he dealt with that to kind of keep the culture in line was like what you were saying. He was, he was getting the administration to buy into what he was doing because at 0 and 4, his mentality was that we're still going to the playoffs. And, yeah. and I think a lot of the parents and, and people in the community were like, geez, you guys are only four because you're not going to the playoffs. And that wasn't his mentality. So, but he had to get the buy-in from those different, you know, groups to, um, mm-hmm. to see it happen, to make it positive. Yeah. You know, uh, Patrick Walsh had some great mentors, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he sure, he sure did. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have uh, 
I know a lot of people that know Patrick Walsh. I'm really good friends with Nick Jones, the head basketball coach at Monta Vista High School, and mm-hmm. uh, Damon Bowers, who played at San Jose State, and Patrick Walsh were the best of friends. Yeah. And Damon Bowers was my eighth grade PE class. So, you know, I know that Patrick Walsh is just a gifted guy. Those people spoke so highly of him. And, you know, it is, it is an art form. You know, and when you have mentors like that, that really helps you. Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely did. And, and he's he definitely um, is a mentor of mine in many ways. Uh, just watching him has taught me not only is just to, to be a better to be a better coach, being a better person, but he showed me the and he showed the program kind of a template of this is what you do when you're on your back, when, when you're on four. And you're, you're not just losing, but you're getting your butt kicked. This is, this is how you dig your feet into the ground and, and stay to the course and stick to the process and stay within the culture. And he just he showed me, especially what I'm doing now working with teams and athletes, that when I do work with other coaches and they go through something similar, I have something to, to go off of because he, he allowed me to witness it, which was, it was just a beautiful experience. Yeah, that would be. That would be. You know, it's um, just the idea that you're teaching your athletes what to do when they're on their back. That's really good stuff. That's really good stuff. Absolutely. And speaking of mentors, who's your mentor? Well, when I grew up, my high school coach was one of the most kind men I'd ever ever encountered in my entire lifetime. And it took me a long time to understand that he was the perfect coach for my temperament. Mm. And so my high school coach, Jim Yelton is certainly one of my mentors. Uh, I had another high school coach named Bob Peters, who basically built the weight room at Coverly high school. We were the first high school to have a comprehensive weightlifting program. And, he would do things. He, he taught me work ethic. He taught me the importance of strength training. And so I, I really hold these two guys very high as mentors. And I learned a lot of basketball from my junior college basketball coach. Uh, his name was Jerry Cole. And so those are three of my mentors. Awesome. Are they, are they still in your life? You know, um, Coach Yelton passed, and Coach Peters is still alive. And Coach Peters lived down the street from me when I was growing up. Mm. And his brother-in-law and sister came to live with them when uh, I was a junior. And, and the brother-in-law was a junior also. We became best friends. So I basically lived in the Peters household for about you know six to eight years. And last summer... I was able to put together uh, a Coverly reunion. Coverly High School closed in 1979 because of declining enrollment. Mm. And I was able to put together a reunion to honor all the living Coverly coaches. And it was called the Jim Bob for Jim Yelton and Bob Peters. And we had about 150 people there and about 11 coaches from Coverly High School. And it was just something that was just tremendously fun to do. And when, when was that? Yeah. 
That was last July. I think it was July 9th. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, I always talked about, I have to do something to honor Bob and Jim because they were so instrumental in my life and they did so many things for, for students. And so to be able to do this, uh, it, it was, you know, very important to me. And it was just, it was wonderful to, to see everybody there. That's great. You know, I, I think, um, uh, paying homage to our mentors, mentors are, um, we just need to do it because there's nothing like having somebody in our lives that have guided us, inspired us, helped us in any way. You know, when I play at Sonoma State, uh, I didn't have anybody in place. Even though I had mentors, I didn't utilize them, um, and I really <laughs> wish I would have, but I just didn't have anybody really talk to, and I felt kind of like I was on an island. However, you know, when you know going into high school, you know, Coach Carabinas, for me as a leader, him and I had just a really nice, um, actually a really good chemistry. You know, he was, he could be a very intense coach, but with him and I, he allowed me just to be me and he allowed me to lead whenever I wanted. I didn't have to ask him, hey, can I do this with the team? He just let me do it. And so he gave me a lot of uh, autonomy and because, and I felt that he did that because he trusted me. And so I learned a lot in that regard of just being a leader. But I would say, like, out of all the coaches that did coach me, besides my father who coached me many years in baseball, uh, Pete Davis was my head coach over at Chabot Junior College. And he just, I don't know what it was, he just he knew how to talk to me, he knew how to inspire me, he knew how to inspire the team. And he taught me one of the best things in my life that I still use, use today is, you know, at a young 19-year-old quarterback like myself, I even though I make decisions on the football field all the time, in life, when it was with school and relationships and families, I had a hard time making a decision because I was so fearful of the outcome. So he was, he was instrumental on make a decision and then go with it and just feel confident with it. And if, if it doesn't meet your expectations or you fail, you have to learn from it. Keep it simple. And so... Always when I get in a situation now this day, like, you know, should I do this? I just have to trust my gut and make the decision. All because he kind of gave me that, that advice when I was 19. Wow. That is really good stuff. Yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a great man. He's over at San Mateo Junior College right now coaching. But, yeah, he's just a, he's affected a lot of young men's lives. I know that. Yeah, having tremendous mentors is, you know, invaluable. The other thing that's invaluable, too, is learning from the people that are around you. You know, the different coaches in your high school, that's one of the things that, that, are, that is nice, that you get a chance to talk some, but there's so many more off-campus coaches now. You know, in the old days, you'd have four or five coaches teaching PE, and so that you'd sit around the office and you'd talk about coaching and now it's it's much different. You know, you don't have those huge PE staffs anymore. Right. And, and it is vitally important your PE teachers coach for the well being of your athletic program. Yeah. Big time. Now and, and, and elaborate on that a little bit. Well, if if your coaches are not or your PE teachers are not coaching, now they don't have vested interest. 
And so they're not out there recruiting athletes because they deal with large groups of kids. If you teach in freshman classes, there may be kids out there that have potential and they're not playing. Well, they're not necessarily recruiting these kids to play. We're encouraging these kids to play. And, and when you have coaches that are PE teachers, now everybody's out there in the network working hard to enhance the programs, to build confidence in kids, to talk to kids, to counsel them, and your school just functions better. Absolutely. I, I agree. I, when I was going through high school, I would say almost every single PE teacher was involved in, in coaching some way, somehow. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Interesting. You know, one thing that I want to touch on as far as coaching goes, now you're, over the years, you have um, adapted to to yoga. Do you incorporate that into your teams? Is that part of the regiment as far as being a part of your teams? Or is that something that you're just involved with by yourself? And I, and I believe you do teach it uh, at school or have taught it at school. Well, you know, that's a great, great story. So in 1991, uh, there was one yoga class and the teacher said, look, I got to get out of this because it was basically kids that hated PE. So everybody turns to me and goes, you teach it. You like kids. Well, I didn't really want to teach it. Didn't want to follow the teacher that was teaching it, but I wanted to be a team player. So I says, okay, well, I'll do the yoga class. And so in 1991, I went in and had no clue of how to teach this class. So bit by bit, I I learned some things from students. We brought in different people that were yoga instructors. And as the years went by, I developed more confidence and I was able to teach the class. And we went from having one class with 28 yoga students to having six sections of yoga. Wow. And what happened was, I mean, so now with me being the only yoga teacher, kids who had a really good experience, maybe in my freshman classes go, well, if he's the only yoga teacher, I'll get him. And, and if they liked you, you know, they're going to sign up for your class. And so it was interesting because when I first took it over, I was told, look, on Fridays, just let them um, sit in a dark room and listen to music. And so I did that for a couple of weeks. And then I tried <laughs> a guided imagery. And I says, okay, I'm going to come backwards from three. And when you get to one, you're going to be wide awake and totally refreshed. Well, I kind of backwards got the one. <laughs> internal lights and some girls just snoring at the top of her lungs. And I'm just going, oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, so we actually developed a stress management Friday. And what we did is we did breathing exercises. We did progressive muscle relaxations. And I always took the kids on a guided imagery. And I didn't read off a script. I did this live and just, it was, it was just a phenomenal experience. It was, it was empowering for me. I think it was very helpful for the kids and, Yoga was the biggest growth experience in my entire lifetime because all of a sudden I had to teach individuals that hated PE, 
hated exercise and didn't come anywhere from my background. And not all the kids were like that, but some of the kids were like that. And I got most of the kids that were like that in my PE classes. And so I had to learn how to uh, communicate with these kids, relate to them. And it was just a tremendous growth experience. That's, that's, it's beautiful and it's phenomenal because when you take an app or if you just take a, a student that does not like to exercise, does not like PE, but you put them in an environment where they have to be, where they have to drop into their body, that is, mm-hmm. I think that's powerful because for me at least, you know, when I go work out and I'm in PE and I'm running, I mean, that's when I'm kind of in my body. But when you're spiritually dropping into you know, your muscle stretching and you're focusing on breath, that's 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 just beautiful. That's just awesome. Yeah, you know, and it's it's you know, hopefully that when you're doing all the poses and the stretches, that it takes your mind out of your busy world and puts it into another state, relaxes it. We don't take enough time for ourselves to relax and slow down. Right. Yeah, we're all dealing with that monkey brain, swinging from one thought to the next. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and life is faster now, you know, with social media and everything. This everything's bam, bam, bam. Absolutely. Now are you are you still implementing yoga and relaxation, breathing and, and using imagery scripts? Are you still doing that as far as your coaching or was that something that you that you just dealt with as when you were teaching in high school? You know, that's something we did as, as a PE class. It was very difficult to incorporate too much of that stuff just because of time constraints. You know, on occasion, we do some guided imagery with the kids, but we, we didn't do it as much as we'd like to. I remember when I was at Cal High and I was coaching Scott Orn and John Hamilton and those guys, we would sit in the locker room before the game and we do a little breathing exercise and I'd talk to them a little bit and they really liked that. They thought that was really good. So we've done a little bit of that. Great. Not as much as, as, as I would like because of time. You know, when it case, when it takes time for mental performance, it does take time, whether it's breathing, whether it's um, meditating, but it's really interesting. The power of breath. It's the more that I'm, in my role in working with athletes and teams, you know, the breath controls everything. It controls the body, controls the mind. And once we can realize how we can access the breath, even when we're stressed out, even when something seems to be fearful, it's so funny how the body kind of reacts to the, to your, to, to the, to your brain and how it just reacts overall, just because you controlled your breath. You know, you have some really great thoughts we really need to get together sometime over there so that i can pick your brain a little bit (laughs) absolutely i like what you're saying uh i actually grew up on the peninsula in palo alto and so i'm you know back and forth there so next time i'm uh on that side of the bay we'll have to get together maybe have some lunch absolutely absolutely yeah i've always i've always admired the way that you've worked with kids the way that you've coached teams it's just, um, and to me, it's. I'm really excited that I've had this chance to talk to you and, and kind of um, just hear your perspective on things that are happening, uh, just within the game of basketball. But just you know, working with you know high school boys and girls basketball teams, it's uh, it's really awesome to to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, 
I'm honored that you chose me to be on your show. I mean, it's just a very exciting thing. You know, it's, it's incredibly exciting when you can reconnect with athletes from your past. It's just a great thing. It, it is. And well, I'm most appreciative. Absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, being very transparent here, you know, growing up in, in the Bay Area, there's, to me, there's been a lot of great coaches, whether if it's, you know, football, basketball, swimming. And for me, it was a no-brainer to have you on my show just because you, you, you were in that circle of, of dynamic coaches. And, and to be honest with you, when, when I was 24, 25 years old, there you were sitting at a Jamba Juice, hadn't seen you in years, and you just reached out to me and said, hey, are you Grant? I'm like, yeah. And we, I don't know if you remember that, but we had a really nice conversation, and that left an imprint on me. So, yes, I would love to, to talk to you more and build our relationship, and uh, I'm always here for you. But I do want to do ask you a few questions just because right now, you know, March Madness is at its height. So, yeah. every, you know, everyone's peeled to the, the TV screen these days. So before I get into some questions about March Madness, South Carolina's head coach, Frank Martin, he had came, mm-hmm. he had came out with a statement a few days ago, and it's kind of about – I wouldn't say, yeah, I guess you can say parents, but he basically is saying it's not about the kids that need to change. They're all going to stay the same. It's, it's us. It's us as adults. We need to change and we need to start thinking differently because we, we always try to change these kids. But he said, you know, basically his message was they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They're going to do what 18 and 19, 20 year old kids do. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and some of them are cut from a different cloth and have different, you know, morals and, and different perspectives and goals. But do you think his statement was accurate? I don't think there's any question about that. Mm-hmm. No question about that, you know. And he's talking about, you know, holding kids to higher standards and, you know, you know not giving every kid a trophy and that kind of stuff. And, and so he's right on in his statements, you know, and he, he very much parallels Morgan Wooten in his thought process. Morgan Wooten was the greatest high school basketball coach in the country. He, he was at the Matha and won like over a thousand games or something. It was just amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty powerful man. That's awesome. That's awesome. From a coach's perspective, especially at March Madness, right now we're going into the Final Four. You know, right now everybody, even the programs, the schools, media, every, it's all about winning. Who's going to win the tournament? As from a coach, from a coaching perspective, how do you keep the team from not focusing on that outcome, winning and losing, or do you? Well, when you get to that level, obviously that you know. You have to make winning your focus, but your base has been built around the principle that you're going to work as hard as you can on a daily basis, and you're going to develop all those lifetime qualities, and that's going to carry you to winning. So if you build the base and you know you work as hard as you can to be successful and you work as hard as you can to be a great teammate and your goal is winning. Yeah. That's going to hurt in the end, 
if you don't, but if it didn't hurt, there'd be something wrong. If it didn't hurt, it would mean that you just didn't put everything into it that you needed to. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, winning has to be the goal when you get, you know, at the college level, winning is the goal. But with that in mind is that to reach that goal of winning, you have to develop all the things that should help kids for a lifetime. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think with sports, especially with, you know, what I went through, my peers, I've, I mean, we've, you learn so much from sports and it does develop yeah. your character. And I, it helped me through my corporate life. You know, when I graduated from college, I got into the, in the corporate world and, and I use that same mindset and the same tenacity that I put towards sports into my work. So, and I just hear from a lot of people that, you know, if, if you're, if you play sports, you're in a good program, you just, you get, you, you learn really good life skills. Yeah. Yeah. No question. You know, sports should be a venue that teaches us how to handle adversity without lifelong repercussions. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's like, okay, you lose a game. You don't get to start. You're disappointed, but you're still going to be able to be very successful in life. Sometimes when you deal with great adversity as an adult, it is a life changing experience and sports just shouldn't, you know, sports should be where we learn how to deal with failure. That's part of the problem is that now when kids fail, parents want to be there as a parachute. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And it, and this is really hard, especially when you're working with, um, you know, the youth and, and at the high school level, but when you're telling an athlete that your performance doesn't define who you are, it's really hard for an athlete who wants just to get that scholarship or wants to go to the, you know, the CCS championship. They, they, they don't understand it. They don't allow themselves to understand it. But once they can understand that their performance doesn't define who they are, then they can kind of attach themselves from that winning and losing because it took me a long time as an athlete to get to that point because you know when you're the quarterback and you're this and that there's an identity that comes with it and you start to create mm -hmm. this this is who I am but really who you are is this six foot three kid that everyone likes and you love to have fun and you love to play guitar and that's who you are so mm -hmm. it's interesting to 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 have athletes think of that differently because they get so tied into who they are. It's, it's their performance. So if they're performing well, that means they're a good person. If they're performing bad, then they're not a good person. Yeah. It's just a roller coaster. Yeah. Ride. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point you bring up. So with that being said, who do you think's in a, who do you think's in a win it all in March Madness? Uh, I'm going to put my money on North Carolina. I was just incredibly impressed with their defense. And one of the things about North Carolina is, is that they have a lot of kids that are in that starting lineup that are seniors and juniors. So they've been in that program for four years, whereas a lot of the other schools, like, well, not a lot of the other schools, but some of the other schools that they've played, 
you know, on this journey have one and done kids. And it's very, when you have a lot of one and done guys, it's very difficult to build that cohesiveness that you're able to build when you do have these seniors and juniors. So I like North Carolina. Yeah, me too. And that's actually a great point. Uh, When you have kids that are leaving after a year, it's really hard to have continuity and consistency within a program. But when you're having, you know, guys are sticking around for two or three years, it um, not only does it make it stronger with that program, but it just, it makes more of the continuity of that culture stick. Yeah. And if, if kids are there as seniors and juniors, it means that they have developed through the program to get to the point where they're now able to be major contributors. So they have an incredible vested interest. Absolutely. Well, what I like to do at the end of my, uh, at the end of all my, my podcast here, I always like to promote a book and this book is a phenomenal book. It's called coaching the mental game, leadership philosophies and strategies for peak performance in sports and everyday life from H a Dorfman. This is somewhat of a Bible. If you really want to get, you know, coaches out there that are listening to this podcast, if they really want to strengthen the way that they teach the mental game to their, to their teams, to their other coaches, the program as a whole, this is a really good book. Plus H a Dorfman is used to be the uh, sports psychologist for the the Oakland A's years ago and has written tremendous, uh, a lot of tremendous books here about the mental game. So please check out this, uh, this book coach, it's again honored to have you on my show. I love talking to talking to you about basketball and mental performance. Would love to have you on my show again, and uh, we'll take you up on, on on getting that lunch with you in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Be in contact. Absolutely, absolutely. Great, great, great speaking with you. Great. Well, thanks, Coach. All right. You take care. <laughs>